In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So a few months ago, I was at my doctor's office for a wellness check. And I don't even remember what precipitated his comment, but he conceded that the one um, complaint he's had most to treat in recent years, the one affliction, you might say, that he's had to give his greatest attention to and the most of his patients is a sense, this is his own words, a sense of overwhelm. He didn't specify it, you know, HIPAA and all that, right? But he was honest enough to say that, you know, when it comes to colds or, you know, endocrinological situations or cardiac issues, the one thing he's had to go after most is the sense of overwhelm. The uh, proverbial too much on your plate, the proverbial uh, bandwidth in excess of my limits, uh, the, like, uh, like Bilbo says it, I'm stretched too thin, like uh, too much butter, like not enough butter scraped on too much bread. Maybe you're enamored with this new uh, Ken Burns documentary on country music. I know I am. There was an article, an interview I read with him yesterday where he said, you know, country music gets a bad rap. It's kind of associated with with good old boys and pickup trucks and hound dogs and six-packs. Actually, it's about two four-letter words that we don't want to talk about. Love and loss. It's true. And to maybe put it in a less poetic frame... There's a, an author that I commend to you, I've recommended, commended to you before. Her name is Marilyn Robinson. And uh, she wrote an, a, journal, a, a novel several years ago called Gilead that won the Pulitzer. But, but in a very different setting, in an essay that she wrote a few years ago, she, she said this about the way in which, or what accounts for why you and I look around America and find it so polarized and lonely and addicted. And, and she said this, My thesis is always the same, and it's very simply stated, though it has two parts. First, contemporary America is full of fear. And second, fear is not a Christian habit of mind. Which, that sounds like, wow. She's not shaming anybody that's afraid. Um, she's not saying it's unnatural to be fearful, whether you're in America or not. She's only saying that when we cling to the news that you've been heard preached and sung and prayed since we began here 35 minutes ago, that to continually let your mind go towards things that are fearful, it's it's like you're creating a rut for yourself that, that, that the story is out to check you about, to check you on. And the more we think in those fearful terms, the, the, the deeper we make the rut. And, and surely there are a thousand and one physiological reasons how we can amplify that fear, but, but she's saying we have a story We have an idea, we have a truth that's out to push back against that which is fearful in us. To push back against that sense of overwhelm that we can't quite shake. We are listening to the book of Isaiah, which may be a funny choice for even thinking about a phrase about overwhelm and and fearfulness and habits of mind and things like that. And yet the passage that we're going to look at today surely speaks to this question. Because Isaiah is speaking into a, a setting of, of Judah and Jerusalem that's, that's full of overwhelm. And, and that's putting it lightly. In the moment into which he speaks, Judah has been brought to its knees. And for all sorts of reasons. And a lot of those reasons would resonate with even us today, 2,700 years later. And that's what we want to listen for. What does it mean to face the sense of overwhelm in us, 
What does it mean to be encouraged with the only truth that might be able to encourage us deeply? Isaiah is out to encourage Judah and Jerusalem there on its knees. And he's going to do so by helping us say it in three ways. One, why are we in need of encouragement? Or in other words, what's the cause of our discouragement? Secondly, what is the substance of that encouragement that God is out to offer? And thirdly, what's the basis for us believing that that encouragement is true? Why do we need it? What is the substance of it? What is the basis for it? You need encouragement and so do I. So let's see if we might find some in what he has to say, even though it's old. If you're able to stand, we're in chapter 42. Isaiah 42, we'll start in verse 18. Hear, you deaf, look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he doesn't observe them. His ears are open, but he doesn't hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue. Spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord? Against whom we sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey. So we poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This is the defiant word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Um, Malcolm Gladwell just wrote a book called Talking to Strangers. And if you come to the event in November called Q Commons like we did last year, you're going to hear more about that book. But there's a, there's a literary figure that shows up in a lot of Russian literature that he gives some um, attention to in this new book. And it's the word yurodivi. And it means holy fool. And, and that character in much of Russian literature is somebody that everybody thinks is just mad, like off their rocker, um, they live out, you know, in wilderness places, 
Uh, everybody thinks they're just idiots, right? Thus the fool part. They have no reputation. And yet it's because they have this distance from everybody else that they can actually see into reality like nobody else will, is willing to. That's the holy fool. The one who's kind of like, ah, he's just an old guy that lives under the river. But he's the one that sees. And therefore he's holy and set apart. Isaiah is a holy fool. He is the one that everybody looks at and says, who appointed this guy? He's full of it. He doesn't know what's going on. And yet he's the one who sees like no one else sees. And it's entirely in keeping with what God had told him back in chapter 6, which you look at a couple weeks ago. You're going to go telling, and nobody's going to listen. They're all going to think you a holy fool. True to form, he does it. Now, I know, two weeks ago we were in chapter 6, and now we're in chapter 42. Talk about a break. What's happened between then and here? A lot. Promises have been made. A vision of a new city has been outlined by Isaiah. A world to come in the midst of the one that is crumbling. Jerusalem has been threatened with destruction. And its king, whose name was Hezekiah, has prayed to the Lord for deliverance. And miraculously, Jerusalem is saved from that. And then, even in the wake of that, this same king makes a fateful choice. One that Isaiah tries to warn him of, but he makes it anyway. And here we find ourselves in chapter 42 in the wake of that choice, which I will speak of in a moment. But in that moment, Isaiah is lamenting Israel's sense of overwhelm. And he is playing the holy fool. And he is out to tell them the sources of their discouragement. The sources of their discouragement, which would then help them and us to know what is, what is our need for encouragement. You really don't know what, the, what, the, what the, the remedy is until you understand the diagnosis. And this may sound a lot like what we heard about in two weeks ago in chapter 6. But, but Isaiah is here to play the holy fool by helping Jerusalem to see why it is in need of encouragement. And I believe that he has as much to say to us as he had to say to them. There are three reasons that Israel, or Jerusalem, was in need of encouragement that I think resonates with our own. And the first is this. They and we are afflicted with amnesia. And I take that from what I hear there in verse 19. Hear you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? Okay, Isaiah, we get it. You're saying we don't see, we can't hear. Yes. What can't we see? What can't we hear? We can't see who we are and what we're here for. I'm reading a columnist today. He's a, he's a, he's a, a gay atheist conservative. His name is Douglas Murray, and the one thing that he thinks nobody wants to talk about in this world is how um, now that we've jettisoned the idea of God, we've left nothing in its place to provide a basis for morality. And when there's no basis for morality, we're all clamoring for a sense of identity. And that's why everybody's fighting over that so much and hating each other over it. Some things never change. In this day that Isaiah is speaking into, Isaiah has forgotten itself. 
or rather Jerusalem, has forgotten itself. It's forgotten that it's a messenger, that it's a servant, who they are, why they're here. And Isaiah is there to say, you have forgotten. You are suffering from an amnesia. You, are, you have lost yourself. You no longer know your place. And to that, friends, we are all susceptible. Um, if you're a parent, if you're a teacher... Um, sometimes you look at kids or students and it's like you walk around with a permanent uh, face palm. Um, like I, I, I cannot believe the number of times I've said it and still you look at me like I have spoken a foreign language up until this point. And you are just bewildered with how it could be as plain as day and still they don't get it or they won't get it regardless of the place. And you say that and you can't believe it and then you pause for a second then you reflect. And you look at your own heart. And you consider how much you've seen and heard and how much wisdom you've received for so long. And you discover, if you are honest with yourself, how it seems you are constitutionally incapable of responding well to what is as plain as the nose on your face. You've been told who you are. You've been explained what you're here for, and yet just it doesn't resonate, and, and it just doesn't, it doesn't click in. Um, two weeks ago, I turned 48, and I realized this week that I am now as old as my father was when I was born, which is a very wearying thought to me, <laughs> the idea of a newborn at the age of 48. Wearisome, terrifying. But I'll tell you another reason why that, that sort of was, was sobering to me is not only that it was, it was, a, weird, it was a whipping thought, because um, I never thought I'd be 48, um, but I, I think if I ever thought when I was going to be 48, that once I was 48, everything would be much more mature. <laughs> like, I'd be so emotionally stable, and it'd be great, and I'd have all this wisdom, and I would just be totally settled and grounded and all that, and then I'd look and be like, well, maybe 58. <laughs> right? And that was a discouraging thought. And maybe, I don't know, maybe that's your discouraging thought. Or maybe I'm just, you know, taking it on too much. But um, I'll tell you why it might be a discouraging thought if it's a discouraging thought for you. For one, it may be because you had this sort of arbitrary, vague version of what your life plan would be. And that by this or that point, you were going to be this kind of person. And then when that didn't materialize, it's kind of like, do I give up? Was that a joke? Who told me that I should have been that way? Or, you know... But I think maybe a deeper reason why I might have been discouraged by it is because I realized that all the things that I've kind of given myself to, some of the patterns that I've employed have made me vulnerable. They've opened myself up to things that I'd like to be able to shake or with a snap of a finger, and I, I, I don't. And, and that happens to be the second reason why Isaiah is calling out Israel for why it might be discouraged. Not only is it full of amnesia about who it is, um, it is, metaphorically and literally speaking, despoiled and defenseless. It's been robbed, and you, and you hear that spoken of there in, what is it, verses 22 and 23. This is a people plundered and looted. They are all, all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They've become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Now, we don't know if Isaiah is talking about Jerusalem or Israel in exile when everything that was taken from them and they were shipped off to another country. We don't know if he's talking about exile specifically or a particular condition in general. But what we do know is this. Whatever they are is not what they were. They are less. And they've been robbed. 
They've made choices. They've given themselves to patterns and to certain priorities. And now it is as if they have been pickpocketed. Forces not out for their good have come to plunder them of what they are. And and not just in material ways. In something deeper. And that surely sounds familiar to our own world because if we are honest with ourselves, it is very possible that you and I can make choices and form habits and give ourselves to priorities and in the end we discover, oh my gosh, what have I given up for the sake of that and there's no way for me to recoup my losses. Three chapters earlier in Isaiah 39, that fateful choice I told you about, the king Hezekiah mates. He's out to sort of shore up Israel or Jerusalem from outside invaders. So who does he let to come look through and wander? Literally, his, the inner courts of all Israel's resources, envoys from Babylon. Come look, guys. See our wonder. And these envoys are looking through going, hmm, nice, taking notes. And 100 years later, you know what Babylon does? Seizes upon Jerusalem and takes them back to Babylon. He let the fox in the hen house. And that's more than a tragic tale. That's humanity. You and I let stuff in our world, and by the time they're gone, they've taken a lot. And I know I'm speaking in these broad abstractions, but I'll bet something comes to mind. They suffer from amnesia, they are now despoiled. And defenseless. And they have succumbed to the one thing that defines what sin is. They have gone for a short-term gain at the expense of a long-term loss. And that's what Hezekiah does. Isaiah warns Hezekiah, don't let them in the granaries. Don't let them see what you've got. Because you know what's going to happen, Hezekiah? Your sons, when they are old, they're going to have to deal with this. And you know what Hezekiah says? Cool. It's not my problem now. Smooth sailing now. That'll be their deal. They're big boys. They'll take care of it. Friends, that's the nature of sin. Ah, it's fine. And that gets into the third reason for discouragement. Not only does Israel and we suffer from amnesia, not only has our amnesia led us to be despoiled and defenseless, we are myopic. Myopic in more than one way. And you hear that put very um, succinctly but bluntly there in verse 23. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Their attention is about two feet in front of them, but no farther. And, and Isaiah is playing the holy fool saying, do you see the trajectory you're on? Do you see where this is headed if you continue in this way? I now have a, a driver in my house who is, is learning to drive, and I am grateful for that. It would, but However, it harkens back to my experience of learning to drive with my father, which indelibly on my memory is one sound for the duration of me while I was driving. And it was the sound of my father doing this. <laughs> right? The whole time. <laughs> I remember getting out of the car once. You do it, man. I can't do this anymore. Why? Because where was my, most of my vision on those early days of learning how to drive? About six inches in front of the fr- headlight. And my father's got to say, you've got to look about a quarter mile up the road. <laughs> myopic, man. Myopic. 
And I can laugh at that. And, and you know, you can go on YouTube and you can type in the word fail. And you're going to find 40 channels of fails of people having calamitous accidents because they just weren't aware of what was about to happen or didn't see the future coming up very fast, usually the brick wall or um, a baseball bat. I don't know. Myopic. But I can laugh about that, and we can laugh about that, and there's plenty of things that are worthy laughing about that. But gosh, friends, there is a myopia that is going to kill you. There is a myopia that's going to take a lot from you. And that's what Isaiah is out to warn you of. And they're myopic in one way because they can't see the way they're headed, but they're myopic in another way because they're not really realizing who's involved in a moment like this. And, and Isaiah says this really strong word. Do you know why you're in exile? Do you know why it's all falling apart? Because the Lord is involved here. Like he's, he's playing in this. Like he's got a part in it. And as soon as I say those words, I got to pause because it's worth its own sermon. And I don't have time for its own sermon on that one. But anytime we start saying God could really be involved in why you have been snapped back and hit the brick wall, I always got to say, wait. Because <laughs> if there's anything that we are in danger of, it is jumping to hasty conclusions about interpreting our moment. And fortunately, the Bible does a great job of wrestling with that question too. It's Job's three friends that at first jump to conclusions about why Job is suffering. And then they have to get corrected. And it's Jesus' disciples that jump to conclusions about why that guy in John chapter 9 is born blind. Well, did he sin or was his parents? And Jesus says, how about neither? You and I are always going to be in danger of jumping to conclusions saying, oh, God is clearly trying to get your attention that way. And sometimes you've got to say, I don't know yet. And that's the error that we can all make. And yet there's another error that I'm trying to avoid too. No, we ought not fall into the ditch and, and interpret every single moment as quickly as we can to say, oh, God's trying to get you. But neither can we jump to the other extreme of the pole and just say, God is just a spectator and he's just kind of watching it unfold. Isaiah is not working from that angle either. There are moments when God is out to get our attention. And Isaiah is playing the holy fool here saying, the Lord is out to get your attention. And those are our reasons for why we need some encouragement. Because if we're suffering from amnesia, if we have let ourselves therefore be despoiled and defenseless, and now we look at ourselves and realize, I am myopic in more ways than I can imagine. Yeah, I'm in need of encouragement. And so far, this has not been very cheerful. So where's the encouragement? If that's our need for it, what is the substance of it? There's a, a documentary you should see someday. It's called Collision. And it's got um, a pastor from Idaho named Doug Wilson on a speaking tour with one of the new atheists, the late Christopher Hitchens. And they go from place to place, and they do their own Christian versus atheist debate. And it's a wonderful little get-together. And one of the last scenes of the, the documentary, um, Christopher Hitchens acknowledges that among he and his new atheist ilk, the one argument that really grips a new atheist when it comes to an argument for God is this whole idea of the fine-tuning principle. That if you look at gravitational constants and physical constants and electromagnetic constants and nuclear physics and things like that, that if, if any one of those gravitational constants was off by like a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, you and I would be at best in edible soup. And they grapple with that and they go, no, it doesn't prove anything, but boy, it sure makes it sound like there's something behind here that sounds rather intelligent. That's their, that's their strongest argument for why they have a hard time believing that there might not be a God. But 
But on the flip side, brothers and sisters, I think you would agree that the hardest argument for us when it comes to believing in God is the, the argument of suffering. It's not a matter of if, it's when and how much. Suffering is that one point in which you and I realize that in this world there is enduring, devastating, uneven, unpredictable, and, and uh, demoralizing, is to put it most lightly, suffering in this world. It just is. And every time it comes upon you or someone you love, you are faced with a choice. Is God there? Is he good? Or is there some other theory I ought to be banking my world on? And in this passage, Isaiah is speaking as the holy fool unto Jerusalem, saying that your suffering is in part due to some choices that you've made, but also some forces that are way beyond your control. And yet I am here to tell you a word of encouragement. And that first encouragement is this. Even in that, God is there. In a world full of hatred and injustice and violence and war, God is there. That's why the, that's why the youth sang the song at the beginning. It's not just to start the service, it's to prepare you to hear that word now. God is there. I need to hear that. And and as soon as I say those words, you know, um, we've felt overwhelmed, we've felt burned, we've felt consumed, whether it's us or somebody else. You know, we'll we'll hear him say there in 43.2, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flames shall not consume you. He's saying, I'm with you, even in that. And we hear that and we go, can that really be true? I mean, is he he really with us? And then you remember, who is Isaiah talking to? To people who are very intimately acquainted with hatred and violence and injustice and fear and war. They've been the recipients of that kind of behavior. And Isaiah is still speaking to them without hesitation, saying, God is there. And sometimes you have to ask yourself, why, why when you hear that phrase, why when you hear that encouragement, why do, you, why do you flinch maybe on the inside? And some people just receive it and go, that's great. And others, others maybe myself included at times, go, ah, I, I want to believe that, but why? Why do we flinch? Why do we hesitate? And maybe it's because you and I have an expectation that the world should be different if God is in charge of it. To which we might reply, who told you that? Who told you it was going to be smooth? Jesus sure didn't. Isaiah is not saying, okay, look, let me back up a little bit. John Calvin, you'll notice that in most of the paintings of him, he's never smiling. Never. I don't know, it was a bad tea thing. It was a bad day thing. Um, He was actually a very unhealthy man most of his life. Uh, Probably because he was hunched over a desk all the time. I don't know. But here's the thing. When he, puts it in, when, he, when he meditates on this passage, he says this, The Lord has not redeemed you so that you might enjoy pleasures and luxuries, rather, but so that you should be prepared for enduring all kinds of evils. Now, leave it to John Calvin to be the party pooper, right? And yet sometimes people, sometimes people just got to say it straight. And he does. And it's good. And we need to hear it. It's not that Isaiah is promising that because you know the Lord or because you belong to him, that it will be all smooth. He's just saying that God will be with you in some way, and I'm not going to explain it. I'm just saying God is there. And if he's there, 
How is he there? That's the second reason for encouragement. Because there's a particular form, not exclusively, but a particular form in which God is present to you. And you hear that spoken of there in verses 5 and 6. Fear not. I'm with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. What's he talking about? They've been in exile. They've been dispersed across wide stretches of land. And he's going to say, I'm going to bring you back home. I'm going to bring you back to each other. And not, not simply because so you can have a barbecue. I mean, no pork. But um, not, thank you. It's not just to have a barbecue. It's because there is something about the community that believes that they belong to him and that they belong to each other. And it has a lot to do about when you pass through the fire and through the waters. The other name from the Reformation you might be familiar with, whose name was Martin Luther, in his um, memoirs, he was very candid. When he was, a, he was a man that suffered not only with great mental affliction, but physical affliction too. And he said in one of his journals, I almost lost Christ in the waves and blasts of despair and blasphemy against God. But God was moved by the prayers of the saints and took pity on me and rescued me. He was so under it. He was so overwhelmed. He was so walking through the waters, going through the fire, that it was kind of like, I I think I'm going to let go here. And yet he says later, God joyfully uses the faith of others to sustain the faith of the suffering. In other words, okay, fine. It's all falling apart for you and you have no faith. That's cool. We'll have faith for you. Like, that's how it works. God doesn't just sort of bring Israel back together so that they can have fun together, even though that's part of it, to be sure. But there are moments in which we are passing through it, and we are feeling consumed, and God is saying, I will encourage you, and I will be present to you strongly through who I give back to you. The third reason for encouragement is even more astonishing. And it's what he says there in chapter 43. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, I love you. I give men red in turn for you, a people in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east. He is saying this. Look, it is not a given in this life that anybody ever says to you, I love you. It's not a given. It's a gift if it happens. It's not a given. And if anybody's ever said to you, I love you, that's a gift to you, and you should give thanks. And if you are so fortunate that there have been many people who have looked you in the eye and said, I love you, you are even more fortunate. But I will bet that if there are more than two or three in your mind of people who have said to you, I love you in your life, there's probably at least one face and one voice that when they say that to you, I love you, you are sent by it. Imagine. If that is your experience with somebody in this life and that is a gift to you, imagine the one who is the author of all things saying that to you. That'll change your day. That'll change your outlook. And Isaiah is saying is a third form of encouragement that God is going to spare no expense to deliver you to himself. The references to Egypt and to Cush and Seba You know, whether Isaiah is talking about a future event or a past event, we're not sure, but we sure know this about Israel's history. 
for Israel to be delivered from Egypt through the Exodus, it was going to cost. And it cost Egypt mightily. And God would spare no expense to bring them to himself. Why would he want to be the source of encouragement in all those ways? This is the last thing we've got to talk about. We've talked about the reasons for our need for encouragement. We've talked about the substance of the encouragement. Now we've got to talk about the basis for it. Because um, it's not what you think. The reason that you and I might rest and believe that that encouragement is real and not just words is from what you hear in verses 1 and 7. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Why was Israel to be encouraged? Why might you be encouraged? It's not for what you've done. It's for who he is. It's not the way in which you find yourself, but the way in which you understand yourself. Who you are to him. Created, formed, named for his glory. That's why God has chosen to act. That's why God has chosen to encourage and to be with and to send and to spare no expense. Now look, that is not saying that God doesn't care whether you listen to him. Obviously, in chapter 42, we hear him saying, it's for your disobedience that I have allowed you to enter into this great big purification moment for you. But he is saying, I give you this encouragement. I will spare no expense, not because of what you've done, but because of who I am. And you may hear that and go, well, isn't that sweet? But if you don't subscribe to that idea, then you only have one other choice for where you're going to find your greatest rest and form of acceptance. I never heard the word or the name Tavi Gevinson until last week. And some of you may have heard of that name. She's one of these so-called celebrity Instagrammers. She's made it a career to take the most optimal pictures of herself and stuff and then post it on Instagram and everybody get the likes. Oh, I love this. this is and, you know, it's, it's just her thing. And last week she confided in her own little memoir, a little article um, about what this life of putting up her best self for everybody to see, this perfectly curated version of herself, what it has done to her. And, and she says this. It's kind of a long quote, but relax. Listen. This cycle of judging and being judged is a black hole in which time disappears, in which I and the people I encounter are all frozen in our profiles. It is where I nourish my insecurities over the millions of past versions of me that float around like old yearbook photos and where I still judge people I don't know for reasons I can't even remember. After countless adventures through the black hole, my propensity to share, perform, and entertain has melded with a desire far more cynical to be liked quantifiably for an idealized version of myself at a rate not possible even 10 years ago. I think I am a writer and an actor and an artist, but I haven't believed the purity of my own intentions ever since I became my own salesperson too. I'm not saying any of you are aspiring to be celebrity Instagrammers. 
but I dare say that what she is susceptible to and is at least acknowledging of is what you and I are all tempted with, and that is to fill our security, insecurities with whatever we can do so that we might be judged well by others that we respect. And that we are always going to be tempted to becoming our own salespersons. Showing forth our best self so that we might be liked. And that's one profound, subtle, habitual way of finding your acceptance. What Isaiah is saying to Judah is that the reason you might find your rest and refuge is because of how God thinks of you. Not because of anything you've done, known, or said. Look, there's nothing wrong with loving our job, loving our children, loving a spouse, loving our experiences. All of those things are good, and we find nourishment from them. That's fine. But when you allow them to be the deepest thing, you have built your house on shifting sand. Because the job's going to go, and the child's going to move away, and the spouse is going to die, and your body's going to give up. And at some point, you will have to ask yourself, where will I sink my feet to find that anchor and acceptance I most need? Alan Noble is a professor in Oklahoma. And he wrote a wonderful essay last week called On Living that's in the ministry resources page of the sermon this week, so I commend you to it. And he, he acknowledges this personal and collective sense of overwhelm that we may feel, and he talks about some of those a thousand and one ways in which our bodies, our bodies can conspire against us to be habitually anxious and depressed. He talks about all of that stuff, and he recognizes it, but he also acknowledges that at some point, even in the midst of your, your bodily afflictions, you're going to have to find a place in which where are you going to sink your feet? And so he said in that essay, you can't cease being useful to God because you were never useful to begin with. That's simply not why he created you, why he continues to sustain your being in the world. It was gratuitous. It was prodigal. He made us just because he loves us and for his own good pleasure. Every other reason to live demands that you remain useful and one day your use will run out but not so with God. To God, your existence in his universe is an act of creation, and it remains good as creation even in its fallen state. Friends, that is what Isaiah is playing the holy fool to say to Judah. And what Isaiah said to Judah, we have heard and seen like we never could have imagined in the one who was Jesus. Because he was with us, like no one had. And he made an exchange for us, like no one could. And he made a new people through his blood that might be the bearers of his glory and the one in whom his spirit dwells. And that's why we keep telling each other that story. And that's why, if there's anything that we might do with this passage, it is to hear what Noble says. The task before us is to hold each other up to remind one another of the truth that is truer than our deepest misery, to attend to the gift God has given us, to accept that it is good even when we do not feel that goodness at all. You know what Alan Noble was calling us to in Isaiah also? To be a holy fool. It is a foolish, absurd thing to believe what we do 
But he is no fool to give that which he cannot keep, to gain which he cannot lose. And so let me end with a little excerpt from a novel by Friedrich Bigner about an old holy man named Godric who made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and was baptized in the Jordan and said this to God, um, emerging from the Jordan dripping wet. O thou that asketh much of him, to whom thou givest much, have mercy. Remember me not for the ill I've done, but for the good I've dreamed. Help me to be not just the old and foolish one thou seest now, but once again a fool for thee. Help me to pray. Help me whatever way thou canst, dear Christ and Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to believe that you are in fact with us even in the midst of our darkness and what feels like overwhelming and consuming and and a burning place. We ask that you might help us to be free to love, having our feet sunk deep into that which cannot change so that we find ourselves, find our purpose, and in that find our love for you, for one another, and even for those who hate us. How you will do that, we do not know. We ask that you would. Help us not to persist in folly, but help us to give thanks that you love fools. Amen.